we're starting a new series this morning, and it's uh, it's called Rooted, and we're going to take the next ten weeks, and we're going to look at some of the uh, some of the parts of the the Bible and of our faith that root us deeply. Uh, one of the things that I would think we all agree on is that in life we need roots. Uh, we, we need something in our life that gives us a foundation, gives us strength, uh, that when the winds of life blow, when the storms of life come, when there are challenges, when there are fears, when there are doubts, when there are tragedies, all of those things in our lives, what are, what are the things in our lives that, that create stability for us? What are the things in our lives that, uh, that we stand on? Uh, that, are, that our lives are rooted in. And so we want to talk about some of those truths over the next 10 weeks. And, and we're going to begin that this morning. Uh, and we're going to begin by looking at what happened to the very first church, the early church. Uh, that w- What we know from history is that after Jesus was resurrected, that he stayed around for another 40 days and he talked. And one of the interesting things is that when Jesus preached and he talked, he talked all the time, if you read Acts, he talked all the time about the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God uh, was, was near, the kingdom of God had, a, had arrived. And, and so there was this new thing happening, there was this new community that was going to be born. And, and so then we, we go to Acts 2 and, and we find the birth uh, of the church. And, and what's so interesting is that, that there were a hundred and 20 people in this upper room and they were waiting for God the, that Jesus had told his disciples just go there and wait for me and and when I come I'll give you power to be my witnesses uh, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth and and so they waited and God's spirit came and the church was birthed out of that and they went out and it was the uh, it was a, another feast time it was called the feast of Pentecost and so there were people all around and, and people saw them and they started to gather around and Peter um, started to pre- preach his very first sermon at that point. And, and it says that 3,000 people came forward. And it was so fascinating because they, it, the, Peter preaches his sermon about Jesus and who Jesus is and what happened. And, and it said people were cut to the heart. They were pierced to the heart and they said, brothers, what should we do? And he said, repent and be baptized. So on that day, Peter's first sermon, 3,000 people uh, were baptized. 3,000 people repented. They came to Christ. The church was birthed. And that's a, it's quite a deal, right? 3,000 people, one shot, boom, you got this new church. And so all of a sudden, out of this, uh, this moment, you have 3,000 people who have formed, who are realized that they're part of this church. They've, they've committed their lives to Christ. Uh, they've been baptized. Now what do we do? Uh, how do you take 3,000 people and, sort of, and get any kind of organization, any kind of form? Well, what are you going to do with 3, 000, these 3,000 people, which within a very f- few days became 10,000 people, and now all of a sudden you've got this massive group of people that's growing every day, and how do you prepare them for what's ahead? Uh, what are you going to teach them? What are you going to share with them? What are you going to give them that's going to help them? Be- because as, as you read... Uh, as you read history or read the book of Acts, which is a great book of history on the early church, you'll find that almost immediately these guys were persecuted. Almost immediately it was imprisonment, it was beatings, it was crucifixion, it was death. 
uh, for fe- people who are followers of Jesus. And what's so amazing is, if, you know, is that, that those that were persecuting this early church thought they were going to snuff it out. That, that just the way they thought when they crucified Jesus, they would snuff this out and how'd that work for them. Now they've got this early church and they're going to do the same thing. They're going to persecute this early church. They're going to kill people. So we read right away about Stephen, one of the leaders in this brand new church being stoned to death. Uh, we, we read all of these things that happen and the church continues to grow. The church continues to get stronger and they go from this early persecution that by 400 AD, the whole Roman Empire is considered a Christian empire. Uh, and so the greater the persecution, the faster the church grew. And we find sometimes, you know, we get disappointed over the really small things. Their, their life was on the line every day for what they believed. So what was it that rooted them? What was it that gave them the strength? What created a foundation that was deep enough and solid enough and strong enough to withstand that kind of persecution for all these people. This was a brand new thing. There was no history. They had no Bible. They had none of the things that we have. And yet, the harder the persecution came, the stronger they got, the more the church grew. So this morning, I want to take this time as we kick off this series on Rooted to talk about the four things that rooted the early church, the four things that gave them the foundation and the strength and the deep roots to withstand all of the persecution, all of the struggle, and not only to withstand it, but to overwhelm it, that the church grew in spite of all of that. Uh, The church grew exponentially in spite of all that they tried to do to them. So we're going to look at Acts, the second chapter. We're going to look at at what happened to these 3,000 people. There's four categories that I'd like you to consider. The first is that they came the first day because they were curious. They they were curious as to what was going on. They heard the commotion. All of those folks from the the 120 came from that upper room and they were out there and and people were asking, what is going on there? Are they drunk? Are they crazy? Or, you know, what's happening there? You know, is it it a flash mob? You know, what what are they doing uh, out there? And they were curious. Peter preached his first sermon and they became committed. They, they, they repented and were baptized. They all did that day. 3,000 people. But they were immediately thrust into a situation where they needed to become courageous. And, and how do you go from curious to committed to courageous that fast? And then the final part is that they were compelled. That they... They were a force that turned the world upside down. So let's look at the beginning there. So we have this church. We have this group of 3,000 people. And here's what it says. Acts 2.42 says this. And they were continually devoted. They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. The first few words in that is that they devoted themselves. That's the part I want you to look at first. The the language in there, the tense in there, uh, tells us that this was something that they were continually devoted to. Devotion. Devotion's a really important word, isn't it? You can, we throw around words like, man, I love to do that. 
But if you say, I'm devoted to this, then that, that sort of brings it to another level. We, we kind of throw words around like love and like and uh, those kind of things way too easy these days, really. But when you change the language a little bit and you say they were devoted to this, that this was a really inv- something of great importance. And here's the, here, here's the catch. Is it, it was something they were continually devoted to. So let me ask you a question. Is there anything in your life that you're continually devoted to? See, football ends after the Super Bowl, so you can't be continually devoted to that after that. Television just becomes reruns in the summer, so you can't be continually devoted to that. I I suppose you could be continually devoted to running or exercise. Or What is it in your life that you're continually devoted to? Uh, Think about it this way. What do you think about when you first wake up in the morning and and before you go to sleep at night? What occupies your mind most of the time? I don't want you to really answer out loud. But what are you continually devoted to? You see, these 3,000 people were continually devoted to four things, that they took center stage in their lives, that that it wasn't that that's all they did. Um, They had jobs, they had families, they had all these other things, but, but this took center stage that they built their lives around four things. And the scripture says that the first one was the apostles' teaching. Now, I want you to notice something that's really interesting because up until this time, they were called the disciples, right? We have the 12 disciples and then the 11 disciples minus Judas. And now uh, Luke is calling them the apostles. And the disciples mean to follow. That's what the word disciple means. Apostle means to send. They were the sent out ones. So now he's the same group of people and, and, and those who are also, uh, all of those from that, that 120, but, uh, but the, particularly the disciples were called the sent out ones. They were the ones that Christ was sending out. They were going to continue the mission. All of those who began to follow Jesus, be, were, they, they started to be sent out to proclaim the love of Jesus, to tell the gospel story, to proclaim the good news, all of those things. And so now we have the apostles. So they were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching. And what did the apostles teach? Excuse me, they didn't have a Bible. Uh, They they couldn't open up the scripture like we do. Now, they had the Old Testament, and and many of them were well-versed in the Old Testament. And so what we have is the disciples' teaching, the apostles' teaching, was opening up the Old Testament and saying, remember what we learned here. Now, here, let me explain to you how this was fulfilled in the life of Jesus, how this was fulfilled when Jesus came, when God sent his only son, when he walked the earth, when he died on the cross, when he rose again. And so they had the Old Testament, but now they could look at the life of Jesus and see how it all fit together and how Christ had finished the work, how he had continued the work that, that God had promised. And so they taught about Jesus. That's what they had to tell. They were telling the stories. They were reminding them, hey, one day we were going through Samaria. I know it sounds crazy because nobody goes to Samaria, but we were walking through Samaria and we left and Jesus met this woman at a well and here's what they talked about and here's what happened and all the people from the village started coming and listening and and there was another day that that we were in the city and we were Capernaum and and these religious guys brought a woman and they said she was caught in the act of adultery and Jesus said, let he who's without sin cast the first 
cornerstone. It was amazing. And, and they're telling all these stories and they're teaching them about the life of Christ and how Christ fulfilled all the things that were talked about and taught in the Old Testament. And so when they were continually devoted, some they were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were constantly giving themselves to learning about Jesus and who Jesus was and what he meant in their life and how Jesus could transform their life and so they were continually devoted to knowing more and more and more about Jesus. Awesome, right? That was the very first thing. The very first, you know, leg in their chair, the very, the very first pillar in their life, the very first part of their roots was learning about Jesus, who Jesus was, believing in Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, they talk about the apostles' teaching. Now, the second thing is really interesting, too, in that they, it was the fellowship. And I, and I like the idea in the verse that it's, it doesn't say, um, and they committed themselves to, fellow, to fellowship like a verb, but it was the fellowship. You see, Jesus kept talking about this new kingdom, and they'd been part of God's new kingdom, and it was part of the fellowship, the fellowship of those who belong to Jesus. And you know what it meant to them, we'll look at in, in a few verses, but what it meant to them was that they were part of a new family. They were part of a new community. They were part of a, a new kingdom. They belonged to something, and there was power in that, and they were starting to look after each other, and there, there were some amazing things that were happening as a result of being part of the fellowship. And I love this. Y you know, in our culture, uh, it's winning is a huge thing, and, and winning's fun. That's I, I get that, but but winning is such a big thing. And, and and here's what happened in the kingdom, is that Jesus said, you know, it's always been about who can cross the finish line first. Well, here's what the fellowship means: that we all cross the finish line. We get everybody across. Nobody's left out. Nobody's left behind. Nobody doesn't matter. Nobody doesn't count. That that's it's w that we're part of the fellowship that we belong together, that we're in the kingdom of God, uh, that we're citizens in the kingdom, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And you remember, uh, you know, if you want a definition of fellowship, try this one on. Jesus said, love one another as I've loved you. We talk about this all the time because I think it's a big deal. And it's part of my gift of repetition. But Jesus said, love one another as I love you, right? He didn't say love one another as feels good, he didn't say love one another while you're at church. Uh, he didn't say love one another because they're, you know, it's going to be good for you and your business. He didn't say love people who are similar to you. He said love one another like I've loved you. That's where the bar was set. And we know what that looks like because Jesus came and he sacrificed his life. He died on a cross for us that he gave the ultimate sacrifice. And so if you want a great definition of love, it needs to always include sacrifice. That's real love. And he says, so if you want to know what the fellowship looks like, the fellowship looks like that we, that we care about each other the way Jesus cares about us, that we make it our goal to treat people that way, to show that kind of love. And that, that's serious stuff, man. That takes being continually devoted. That just doesn't, you don't just snap your finger and start to love people that way. Uh, you, you just don't decide one morning, but you continually devote yourselves to that. And let me tell you also that it's not an emotion, but it's an act of the will. It's something that we choose to live like. It's something that we commit ourselves to. 
It's not something we do because it feels good, because it doesn't always feel good to love people that way. But that's what it looks like to be in the fellowship. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we get further in the passage. But the next one is the breaking of bread. And I think this is a really interesting one because it's not one that I would have necessarily put in there. It's not one of the pillars or one of the roots that I would think would be something that they were continually devoted to. But, it w- but if you think about what are you organizing your life around, and you've organized it around the apostles' teaching, so you're learning about Jesus, and you're following Jesus, and then the fellowship, where you're learning how to love one another and to live in community and care for one another. And, and then he says, and they were continually devoted to the breaking of bread. And so we understand that as uh, communion, and, you, you know, so once a month we pass out the elements and we share communion together. But but this is a whole different experience. Now, they learned it from Jesus because on, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And and whenever you take the cup, rem- remind yourself, this is the cup of my new covenant. And and so they have the model of that, that it something that Jesus taught them, something that Jesus did. And so now they do it on a regular basis. But here's what would happen. Imagine yourself, you're part of that 3,000 and that growing group, and, and, and so you go on a regular basis to the temple. And just outside of the temple, there's this, this colonnade, this big patio with huge columns. It's called Solomon's Portico. And it's big enough that the apostles can stand there, and they can teach, and, and the temple's built, actually all of Jerusalem's built on a hill, but the temple's at the top of it, and so people are a little bit below you, so you can talk to a lot of people at one time. The apostles would teach from there, and then after they would teach, everybody would scatter, and they would go to homes, and they would have dinner together, and they would eat together, and they would talk about what they've learned and talk about how it applies to their lives. We, we're not geniuses. We got small groups from that, Right? The idea of meeting in homes and and talking about our faith and talking about our walk with Christ and talking about our families and praying for each other comes right out of that. And and so they would have these regular times where they would go. And here's one of the parts of the fellowship that's so important is that if you were from out of town or if you uh, didn't have any food or if you needed something, then you you just got invited to somebody else's house. Everybody had a place. That was part of being in the fellowship. And every time they met, pretty much every time, they would, they would be remember what Jesus had done. They would share in the Lord's Supper together. They would break bread together. They would take the cup and they would remind themselves that all of this centers on Jesus, that all of it centers on who Christ is and, and what he's done and the commitment that he made and how he fulfilled his promises to us. And I think that it's so powerful because we need to be continually devoted to remembering that it's all about Jesus, don't we? Does that make sense? Because, see, we get, we start, sometimes we think it's all about church, or we think it's all about me, and how I feel, and how, what's happened in my life, and and we need to be regularly reminded that it's all about Jesus, and what he's done, and the reason that we sit here today is because of who Jesus is, not because of who I am, Uh, not not because of what I've done, or what, what, what I've accomplished, or or what I need, or what makes me feel better, but it all centers around Jesus, and it's something that we need to be continually devoted to reminding ourselves to being centered around who Jesus is. 
here's the, uh, another cool part of this is that they would have a meal and then when they would have a meal and then they would share communion together, they called that a love feast. Uh, a meal with a group of people, when you added the Lord's Supper to it, was called a love feast. And there were many households of these new Christians that, that when they would have a meal, they would set a place because they had the promise that Jesus was coming back. And they set a place at the table to remind them that Christ was coming back, that there was still another promise that he had made that he was going to fulfill. And, and so when we begin to think of it in that context, the, the breaking of bread and, and thinking about how they did that so often and together uh, is such a powerful part of being reminded that it's all centered around who Jesus is. We just lose that so quickly. And then the fourth thing that it was centered around were the prayers. And again, I find it fascinating that it doesn't say prayer, that they were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer uh, as a huge topic, but it was the prayers. And there's a great reason for that. One is that their prayers were built off of the prayers that had been given to them. So they would regularly go to Psalm 23, and they would, they would regularly pray, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And, and they would use that to launch their prayers. They would use the Psalms, they would use Isaiah, they would use other passages to help them to grow in their prayer, to help them learn how to pray. And, and so part of the prayers was a reminder, even in Luke 11, if you go there, the disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray, right? And, and Jesus gave them what we call the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And, and so they would regularly use those prayers to help them learn how to pray. They were continually devoted to learning how to pray. They were continually devoted to, to communicating with God. They were continually devoted to making sure that that connection between them and God didn't grow cold, that didn't get stale. And so they would go to the Psalms or they would go to the Lord's Prayer or they would go and they would use those prayers to help them to learn how to pray. And here's the other thing that was so important is that from the very beginning of the early church, they prayed together. And we, we've made prayer a personal thing, and, and that's good because there are passages that tell us, you know, go to your closet and pray and the Lord who hear, will hear you. And there, there, there are great passages about that, and that's a really important, that's an important part of my life. But, but somehow we've also forgotten the fact that they, they learned from day one to pray together, that there was something powerful and compelling about praying together about doing it as a group, as doing it as part of the kingdom, as part of the family, as part of the fellowship. And so they learned to pray together. So, so think about this. now, and, and think about it in the context that they were continually devoted, that, that they organized their lives, they organized their schedules. They had an app on their phone for this. They were constantly committed they were continually devoted to learning about Jesus, everything they could learn. And, and how that Old Testament, how that led them to this point with Jesus and how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament promises. They were continually devoted to that. They were continually devoted to this new concept 
of being a family, of being the kingdom of God, of being a fellowship of people. And they were continually devoted to breaking the bread, to reminding them it centered around Jesus and that they shared that in common and that Christ was going to, that not only had he fulfilled his promise, that he would continue to fulfill his promise. He would finish what he started and that he would come back again someday for his people, for his church. And then they prayed. They prayed by themselves. They prayed as a group. They learned to pray from the Old Testament prayers. They learned to pray from the prayer that Jesus taught them. But they prayed. And, and you know, praying is so hard. And, and I've, I've, I've said it before, and a friend told me one time that, you know, prayer would be easy if it, if it wasn't so important. And the truth is, it's hard to pray because there's something about prayer that says, Lord, I can't do this on my own, and I hate to admit I can't do things on my own. Uh, prayer, prayer often leads me to confession uh, of, of things in my life that I'm not proud of. Uh, prayer reminds me that I am helpless without Christ, and, and, and so there, there's so often in my life that I want to make things work on my own. I want to do it myself. I want to pull myself up by the bootstraps, all of those cliches. I want to do all of that, and when I go to prayer, I'm acknowledging the fact that I'm not in control of this world, and I need Christ. And so they were continually devoted to learning. That's why other church scholars, other scholars would call these disciplines because they take work. They're disciplines. They're four disciplines. The disciplines of, of the apostles' teaching, of learning about Jesus, the, the, the disciplines of growing in a fellowship, being part of fellowship, uh, the, the disciplines of breaking bread together, the, the discipline of prayer. Uh, disciplines are things that, that mold us, dis- that, that form us. You know, you typically think of a discipline, uh, you're either in trouble or you're trying to get in shape, right? And uh, so you discipline yourself for one of the, you know, you're getting disciplined or you're disciplining yourself to run a marathon or something, right? Or to lose weight or whatever it is. Uh, and, and one thing that we all would agree that discipline typically requires pain, <laughs> right? It makes you uncomfortable, but you're doing it because the outcome so outweighs the pain involved, the outcome so outweighs the work involved, uh, the sacrifice involved, that you do it to get to that place. And, and so they were disciplining themselves, be, and they didn't know that persecution was going to come. They didn't know that their faith in Christ was going to cost them their lives. They didn't know all that was going to happen, but they were disciplining themselves because they wanted to be everything that Christ wanted them to be. They wanted to be complete in Christ. They wanted to be mature in Christ. They wanted deep roots in Christ. And then when those things happened, the church didn't just stop. The church grew. The church exploded. It continued to grow. And you know, around the world today, the places that that uh, Christianity is growing the fastest are the places that it's most persecuted. It always seems to work that way. Maybe we're going to have a revival. Who knows, huh? But let's look at the last. Um, let's look at the last verses here. In this passage, it says this in verse forty-three. In awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So it was a time of powerful spiritual things going on. 
44, verse 44 says, and all who believe were together. That's the fellowship. All who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So let me just stop there because this is the part where somebody gets a, you know, uh, mind freeze, brain freeze, and they say, whoa, 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 now you're going to tell us to sell everything we have and give them to the poor. And actually, I'm not going to tell you that, but let me tell you what happened. The, they con- started continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And what happened in their lives is something I love to call spontaneous generosity. It just happened. That they saw somebody in need, and they couldn't stand it. And they had to do something about it. And everybody, they, and, and that they ended poverty for people in the early church. Everybody got food. Everybody had a place. And if they didn't have a place, you talk about taking care of widows and orphans. They did that. But they didn't do it because there was a program. They didn't do it because there was a training seminar. They did it out of the roots of, of the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. And when somebody had a need, they wanted to meet that need. And if it meant that they had excess, they would sell it and they would use those funds to help somebody else. Spontaneous generosity. When we're overwhelmed by what Christ has done, when we're overwhelmed with the generosity of God who would send his only son, give him as a sacrifice for us so that we might have life. When we experience that, that generosity causes in us a need to be generous, a desire to be generous. And, and you guys do that so much. I want, in fact, I want to thank you because a few weeks ago we uh, we were uh, raising some money for shoes, right? And we support Duck Downtown Urban Community for Kids. It's a downtown Phoenix group for kids, and um, and we help them with backpacks and we help them with all kinds of things, and then. Uh, at Christmas time, we buy shoes for the kids. Well, also, we support a mission, uh, an orphanage in Sim, uh, called the Simbeti Orphanage in Tanzania. And we, we do things for them periodically. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's just a group of kids uh, in uh, Tanzania because of the AIDS epidemic there, because of other cultural issues. There are so many orphans. They've lost a generation of adults there and and so this orphanage just came out of this incredible need and we uh we take care we help this orphanage and every year we buy shoes for the kids and if we don't buy the shoes they don't get shoes it's just that simple and so we raised the money we invited people to come and 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 buy shoes for a child and the last week um we needed we needed to finish it and, uh, and and so we made a request to you guys, and um, I w- think we have a picture uh, of it here. But um, we we were able to buy. You see the old ones on top and the new ones. We were able to buy uh, uh, shoes for every child in the orphanage, and we had extra money. And what I didn't know is they had sent an email to Stephen Catherine Plum, who are our liaison and told them that they were praying that they could have chicken for Christmas dinner. Because <laughs> they only get meat or poultry once or twice a month, typically. And so they wanted to have chicken for Christmas, and they had sent that prayer request out. Well, 
without knowing it, um, enough money came in that not only uh, did we buy all the shoes that they needed, uh, but we were able to pay for Christmas dinner. And then those kids went out and they found a homeless elderly man and they also gave him Christmas dinner. And that, see, what we did is nice. What they did is spontaneous <laughs> generosity. It's powerful. It's being so overwhelmed with what God has blessed you with and what God's just done that you want to do something else. And so these orphan kids who just got the big surprise, they got shoes and they got dinner, took some of that dinner out to, to help somebody else. A and you see, that's the picture of the early church. That's what spontaneous generosity looks like. So we, we, we shouldn't get all hung up about selling all of our possessions. But let me tell you, if Jesus has changed your life, if you honestly believe that you were lost and now you're found, if he, if, if he really matters in your life, that one of the things you should see in your life is generosity. That's one of the things that ought to be coming out. So if you don't feel generous, then ask the Lord, okay, what, what's in my life? What, what do I, what's going on? Because the result of having Jesus in our life should create generosity. Well, all right. Let me just finish this. In verse 46, it says, And day by day, attending the temple together, Solomon's portico, and, and, uh, and, and other things, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, um, praising God and having favor with all people. I'm going to stop there for just a second. So their attitude was an attitude of thanksgiving and worship. That it wasn't, oh man, we got to help more people, but it was the privilege. It was part of their worship was to, was to live together, to love each other, to care for each other. And, and then every day they would, they would commit themselves to, to worshiping together. The songs that they sang, the prayers that they prayed, giving themselves to the Lord. And then let me just read this last line that's so great. It, it, it says, and, um, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We don't, have, we don't have another sermon recorded right away. We, we don't have uh, any, you know, sort of evangelism seminars. We don't have any booklets being printed. We don't have anything. But when they rooted themselves, they were continually devoted to those four things, uh, and they started to live those out in really practical, authentic ways. The result of that is that people began to look around, and they said, whatever they have, I want. Whatever's going on in their lives, I need it in my life. And the Lord added to their ranks every day, and the church just kept growing. And there was a spontaneous growth that was remarkable, that only came from the Lord. And it came from living out of those four disciplines. It came from living out of those four commitments, being continually devoted to those four things. So if you want to really simplify this whole deal, take those four and start to build those into your life, what would that look like if you really started living out those four things? Learning everything you possibly can about Jesus, growing in your relationship with him, uh, committing yourself to the fellowship, to the body of Christ, being part of something. Uh, to, to bring your bread, to, be to put yourself in positions where you're constantly reminded that it's about Jesus, that he's the center of all this. It's about what he's done so that we can kind of constantly be moving ourselves out of the way. 
And, and, and then the prayers, learning to pray. Pray in your own. Pray with a group. Taking the Old Testament prayers, taking the Lord's Prayer, using that to teach you what it means to be continually devoted to prayer. And here's what I think. I think it would be transformational. I think it would be transformational in your life, in the lives of people around you, in your church, in your community, everybody that comes in contact with you. I think people will want to know what is it in your life, whatever it is, I need it. And I think people will be drawn to that. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this picture that you've given us of what it means to be continually devoted. What are the things that you would have us to be continually devoted to, Lord? And, and Lord, this is not, you know, it may cause some guilt, but this isn't intended for guilt. This is in, inten, intended for encouragement that, that you've given us four beautiful pictures of what it means to be rooted in you. And, and so, Lord, I ask that you would give us great um, energy and excitement and, and a decision